1: Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London, alongside Alex Steele over in the United States. Uh, Tuesday, November the 29th. We're nearly there. The month of November is nearly over. So you need to factor that into your thinking when you're thinking about what is happening uh, with various markets? There probably is month-end uh, factors that need to be more in mind. Right now, we've got an S and P that is softer by three tenths of one percent, the Nasdaq that is down by around half of one percent. European markets finishing broadly flat. The FTSE One Hundred, Alex, up by around half of one percent.
0: Yep. Here in the U.S., uh, we are looking at a little bit of a sell-off uh, in tech and the downside. You're looking at Apple also getting hit. That's a I don't even know. I even know what to call it. A Twitter-Musk-Apple feud uh, pressuring there um, a little bit. Yep. I also do want to point out volume still light. I'm a broken record. And tomorrow is the last day of November. I'm just going to say that. Book's I,
1: I think there's also some concerns about the effect that the, the China lockdowns are having on um, the availability of iPhone 14s. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I think there's various tweets floating around about maybe... Apple being really quite short, Um, and I think that's being factored in. This is nothing official. This is completely unofficial. We're just kind of getting various reports out of China, uh, and that may be knocking Apple a little bit right now. But I had to say China is probably the narrative today. If you look at what outperformed in Europe, uh, it was European banks. HSBC mm-hmm. had a good day. It also offloaded a business in Canada, but Standard Chartered had a good day. The miners had a good day. Oil prices picked up a little bit as well uh, on the back of an expectation that maybe we'll see a, a pickup in vaccinations.
0: Well, not only that, but maybe that uh, OPEC plus will actually cut output. Uh, and that would definitely lend support to the oil price. The fine line, fine line, they're treading into their virtual meeting on Sunday. Yeah, it's going to be
1: virtual. I wonder yeah. why that is.
0: I wonder if it means that they're not going to do anything that hard. Like if right. there's more consensus or it's not going to be more controversial. I wonder, or they're all kind of in agreement anyway. Maybe I they've already made the case.
1: decision, basically.
0: Yeah, kind of. I'm wondering. I'm speculating.
1: No, I think yeah, I, I, there's certainly been some evidence of that in the past. We'll come back. We'll talk about all these stories in just a moment, in a little bit more detail. But let's pull it all together with some headlines
4: from Charlie Pallet. I thank you very much indeed, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. UK mortgage approvals have fallen to the lowest since the early stage of the pandemic, as rising rates dampen demand for property. According to data from the Bank of England, banks and building societies authorized about fifty nine thousand home loans in October, the fewest since June of 2020, and down from from 65,967 in September, that drop larger than economists expected. Justice ministers from the Group of Seven Nations are gathering in Berlin to discuss how to better coordinate efforts to secure evidence of war crimes in Ukraine and prosecute the alleged perpetrators. Germany's Justice Minister, Marco Buschmann, says war crimes cannot go unpunished no matter who committed them and no matter where they were committed. He calls the process of investigating some 45,000 documented cases in Ukraine a daunting task. Qatar has agreed to supply Germany with liquefied natural gas under a long-term deal that will go a small way to helping the European country replace pipe flows from Russia. State-owned Qatar Energy and ConocoPhillips have signed agreements that will see the Persian Gulf state send up to 2 million tons of LNG a year to Germany from 2026. The deals will last at least 15 years. Germany has had to retool its energy policy since the war in Ukraine forced it to end its long-standing dependence on cheap Russian gas. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London.
1: Charlie Pellett, thank you very much indeed. So Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, is currently giving testimony down in Westminster to the Economic Affairs Committee of the House of Lords, he's talking about a number of different things as he's questioned by the Lords. Talking about what's happening in the labour market, uh, talking about the fact that um, the, the UK labour market maybe is starting to ease a little bit. It's been very tight for a long time. Uh, the rate of pay growth not in line with what the Bank of England wants to see, um, given the the kind of the, the, the backdrop of inflation. Uh, we're obviously seeing a mismatch between wage rises and the inflation rate. But nevertheless, the labour market remains tight, and that's problematic uh, for the Bank of England. We've also seen the, um, the the bank come to the market today and sell some of the emergency, uh, some of the gilts that he, it bought during the, the sort of the emergency period after the Liz Trust quasi 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 mini budget today, the bank selling three hundred and forty six million of that debt. And Bailey talking about the fact that the market was within an hour of a quote severe crisis during that period, a severe market problem, uh, as he talked about. And he, he talked about the gilt market in more detail. Uh, and this is what he had to say, basically saying that the gilt market's still not back and fully functioning.
4: By not involving the Office for Budget Responsibility in the process, that took away a good deal of the substance that we rely upon to go with a a budget from the point of view of forecasting and understanding the impact of measures that are being taken. And that was just not there. There was nothing in that sense. So I I can well understand, you're very right to ask the question, but I would be very clear, this was a most extraordinary process in that sense.
1: He went on to talk about the fact that, that clearly we continue to have major problems uh, in the gilt market. The situation has clearly alleviated, which has given the bank the ability to sell back some of this debt. But, Alex, the, the UK labour market remains a significant problem for the Bank of England. There's a number of factors that have come together to create this scenario. It is very, very tight. Part of that is Brexit. Mm-hmm. But part of that is also caused by the fact that people are still feeling the effects of the pandemic.
0: Yeah, but I feel like the re- everyone's feeling that, like every country is going to be feeling that. But the reason why maybe the UK is feeling it more pronouncedly, if that's a word, uh, is because of Brexit. I mean, can't you make that argument? In which case, that's an immigration policy. And if you fix that, won't things eventually then get better? That's what I can't wrap my mind around.
1: Well, the, the immigration issue is a significant one and is being addressed at the moment. But it, it is hugely political. Yeah. Part of the reason why Brexit... Brexit happened was because of immigration into the UK and the desire maybe maybe to reduce that, mm-hmm. but but the long term disability issue I think is probably maybe more pronounced here. Um, we, we are certainly seeing I think the effects. Why would you think? Are,
0: is it an older population in the workforce?
1: Well, I, I think I think it's a healthcare. I think it's a. I think part of it is is a is, is a problem with the NHS. I think part of it is a a kind of hangover from from before the mm-hmm. pandemic um I, I think there's a number of different factors here but clearly it remains I, I think it is a particular achilles heel for the uk economy and i think this is going to represent a huge challenge for the bank of england well, as it try, tries to navigate jamie rush is here so let's try and get his take uh, on what is on what is happening here uh chief european economist for bloomberg economics jamie is the uk peculiar in what is happening in its labour markets. To Alex's point, a lot of other countries are suffering the, the sort of the lagged effects of the pandemic. Why does it feel to be particularly acute here?
5: It's, it's as, as you say, it's to do with the, the health situation that we find ourselves in in the UK. So you've seen huge waiting lists and backlogs for the National Health Service. Um, and if you look at the, the proportion of people who are out sick, not able to work, Um, it's getting on for half a million people. It's nearly 1% of the workforce. So this is something which is quite different for the UK from what we've seen in Europe, where actually you see participations looking pretty good in the rest of Europe.
0: It's actually so fascinating because during the pandemic, I feel like the overall idea was that the UK did it right. Like you had the NHS, like you had all the support, you had all this healthcare support for people. And the the theory was that you guys are going to be fine because of that. And that here in the US where you have people who then had to get unemployed, they didn't have healthcare. That was going to be a bigger problem. And again, we realized it was maybe the reverse issue of that. And I find that to be quite interesting.
5: Yeah, and I think what the UK did well was um emergency care. And oh, good so a lot of resources were channeled towards that. Now what we ha- now what we have is still a relatively underfunded NHS in terms of the the capital that's spent on it. Um, I should, you know, I should declare my wife's a doctor, so I know, see things a bit more um, on this side. But you know, it's it's, it's underfunded. There are things there. Are, there are things which are are snagging um, the efficient functioning of the NHS, and this is why it's uh, it's it's taking a long time for these these backlogs to be solved. Given that,
1: I, I, if you think about kind of the, the economy as a car, that the UK used to be able to drive at seventy without the car rattling, now it can drive at fifty. Without the car rattling the, the 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 bank needs to think about it in those terms, and therefore given given what 's happening in the labor market, given the low participation rate that we have, given the low productivity that we have, do we need to have structurally higher interest rates, and how much more do they how much higher do they need to be relative to other economies
5: I think so structurally in the long run, the things we 've just talked about those 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 rattles that are causing the economies to grow more slowly. They're going to keep interest rates lower in the very, very long run right. uh, than in other countries. But you're right, though, that in the near term, because we've, we've crashed into them so fast, these, these constraints... Now, the economy is overheating. We've got to hike rates and potentially more than other countries, certainly more than the Eurozone, for yep. example. So, it's, it's the, that near term distinction and the long run distinction. And well, you know, that's where we're driving.
0: Let's go to the Eurozone. Um, so, we got inflation numbers out of Spain and in Germany, uh, inflation uh, slowing. Well, for Germany, they came in bang in line with estimates. For Spain, they're coming down. We didn't get the read on core. And I'm wondering what is your forecast for just how quickly European inflation can continue to come down when we get the overall number tomorrow?
5: Well, we we have a below-consensus forecast for inflation tomorrow. We think it might drop as low as 10.1% from 10.6%. But what I would say, you know, it's a very diffuse field uh, in in estimates for tomorrow's numbers. What is going to matter is not just headline, which has been the focus of the past year, you know, been worrying about it passing through to, to wage expectations and this. What's going to matter also is the core number, and we have a lot less clarity on that. We don't have the same level of detail published at this early stage of the, the release cycle. So tomorrow that could go up, or it could go down. We just don't know. Um, so that's, that's what we're going to be looking to looking for tomorrow. Is, is the happened.
1: ECB now going to pay, pay more attention to core? I've got the, the, the read from Spain, 6.3%. That's up from the prior 62 So in some ways, the, kind of the stickiest stuff is moving in the wrong direction. So is this where attention now turns for the ECB?
5: I think, I think that is definitely happening. And with the Hawks on the committee basically in charge, my prediction is that it will go from, first we'll focus on headline inflation because it's high. Now we'll move to core inflation because it's high. Then we'll move on to something else, maybe the labour market, maybe wages. Um, you know, what's going to actually satisfy them that inflationary pressure is coming down? I think you know, we're going to see the same thing we saw in past episodes with the Bank of England, where they shift from one measure to another. Yeah. And so because fundamentally the Hawks' want interest rates higher.
0: Um, Is... Are hikes going to help inflation?
5: Oh, what's is what can hikes
0: help? hikes? Um,
5: I mean, yes. I mean, I, mean, well, I think I, the I know the, the answer should
0: be yes, but is it really going to?
5: But when we've got a
1: terms of trade shock and energy prices are high, uh, you, uh, raising interest rates doesn't bring the cost of energy down.
5: No, it's going it, to. Quite right, but it's going to keep. It's going to lower inflation in six months two years' time because we're going to have much much lower growth than otherwise would. I mean the. What we've seen with these, you know, we've only seen the start of the hiking cycle, right? But what's been priced in by markets has been this sequence of hikes has been priced in for a long time. This is having an an impact on lending rates, and it has been having an impact on lending rates for months now. So the economy is going to be feeling the squeeze. We can already see demand for credit and supply of credit ebbing. The economy is going to be slowing because of higher interest rates. It's going to be potentially as big as the energy crisis itself, the impact on GDP. So, it is going to. It, I'm pretty sure it's going to loosen the labor market off.
0: But then, to the same point, there was a new report out that said, "What you're looking at, like 700 million euros, was it, that has already been spent on the energy crisis and supporting businesses and households? If that keeps happening, doesn't that sort of offset the potential hi- hi- hike hiking, hiking hikes from the ECB? <laughs> I make up words."
5: Uh, I, so I think this, the energy support is roughly equal to a bit less than the the cost of the gas crisis it's the, the ecb's response on top of that which is going to squeeze the economy and so i i th- if you look at the tightening that's happened since the since the summer it's going to take maybe one one and a half percent of the level of gdp in the in the coming quarters that's similar in size to what people think the energy crisis is going to do now so th- this it's a massive change it's a, it's a massive policy change and it will have an impact
1: what do we think we get at the beginning of December? Is it going to be 75? Was today's data, I think tomorrow's data, judging by your call, probably not, consistent with a with, with 75 basis point hike? Or are we, are we into 50 territory again?
5: I, I think we're fairly firmly in, in 50 territory. We saw, you know, Bloomberg News had a scoop earlier in the month about there not being enough consensus around a 75 basis point hike. They would need to be surprised to do a 75 basis point hike. And I think they're going to be surprised to the downside. So 50 looks more likely.
0: Okay. We'll see what's priced in with that. Jamie, thanks so much. Jamie Rush uh, joining us. He's Chief Europe Economist for Bloomberg Economics. You have to wonder, if we get 50, Guy, will the market be disappointed? Will it be in line? Have rates already baked something of that in? I mean, look at sort of the buying we've seen across the curve today.
1: Well, I, I was looking at the numbers a little earlier. I think we're about 25% priced for a 75 basis point hike, so, i.e. We're, 75 basis points, we're 75% priced for a 50 basis point hike. The market's kind of moved down a little bit over the last mm-hmm. few days. We were priced more than that. Uh, so I think the, the data has kind of taken us there. And this is the big question. Who do you, what are you listening to right now? Are you listening to ECB speak from the likes of Christine Lagarde, or are you listening to the data? Because mm-hmm. in some ways, they're telling you different stories. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
6: There's a huge pent-up demand for the summer, so we've seen that in the bookings, and we expect to fly close to 2019 levels of capacity in our Q4, July, August, September. And the run rate of the bookings that we've seen for the last 10 weeks, to give you an example, is uh, way over and above what it was at the same point in time in 2019. So I don't think that there's so much concern really for for this summer as such, because of that pent-up demand. It's more about what this will mean going into next winter and beyond that.
1: Johan Lundgren, the CEO of EasyJet, speaking to Bloomberg a little bit earlier on today. EasyJet stock down two and a half percent today, two point six percent trading at three eighty-two into the close. I think the the demand story is is looking fairly solid. The question is on the cost side, really, and whether or not actually EasyJet and others potentially are managing fares at the right level, given where costs are going forward at the moment. I think that certainly seems to be a little bit of concern uh, at the moment uh, amongst the analyst community. The analysts basically are talking about the idea that bookings guidance does look positive, but there are significant headwinds that do remain. We've still got relatively high fuel costs. Labour remains challenging. Uh, Airports remain challenging. And we are going into a recession but as I say, demand does seem to be holding up at the moment. And Johan was talking about this. Uh, Conroy Gaynor, Bloomberg Intelligence, travel and leisure and retail analyst, joining me now in the studio. The, the, the issue with EasyJet, maybe more so than some of the other European airlines, is how do they price? Demand still seems to be OK, but I'm looking at the pricing and what is happening with yields at the moment, and I'm wondering whether or not they're doing a good enough job compensating for some of the cost structure problems that they face.
3: Well, yeah, I mean that's the thing. I mean, EasyJet, it's you know, it's never quite been as low cost as its uh, two budget peers, Wizz Air and Ryanair. Yep. It's sort of, but at the same time, it still puts itself in that low cost category, and what it's obviously hoping to do is to get the effect of consumers trading down still, um, you know, away from maybe some of those more expensive legacy carriers. Um, But, you know, there is a concern, as you mentioned, in the analyst community, because, you know, you've got, um, you know, fuel costs up more than 50%. um, In this sort of half year, you've got a tight labor market. Um, Some of the uh, airport and navigation fees are also increasing. Yep. And, you know, looking at some of the, even though it was seen as slightly encouraging the uh, yield sort of outlook they gave, or at least the yield um, outlook they've given for, for this quarter, um, looks like that the yields will be up about low double digit um year on year. Mm-hmm. Costs, costs are rising faster. Um And so there's certain things they have to, I mean, it obviously helps the fact that they're getting that capacity back. Um there's certain things they can do on an efficiency level, such as you know, seasonal contracts. Um I think upgauging uh the yeah. size of the fleet will, aircraft will help their um, efficiency. But you know, it is fun, right? Yep. Yeah.
0: I was gonna say though, if, if demand is gonna hold up and their costs are rising, is there any pricing power yet easy EasyJet or in the industry?
3: Well, I mean there's there's some pricing power to the extent that they do have um, you know, a large a large fleet in certain Basis, such as Gatwick um, so they've got um, you know a, a big market share there um, Amsterdam's another one although we know that Amsterdam's certainly got its uh, problems in, in terms of uh, staff shortages and and operational issues and issues on capacity there um, and what they're also trying to do EasyJet is they're trying to um, sort of go for these slot constrained airports um, so you know I've obviously mentioned Gatwick um, you've got um, say Porto, Lisbon. Is, um, is that, that to avoid
1: Wiz and, and Ryanair?
3: Well, but you, you certainly could make that argument, right? So I think um, you know Wiz, Wiz and Ryanair are sort of really going for growth. They're being very aggressive um, yeah. and they're aggressive on prices, as, as we know. Whereas if EasyJet is sort of you know looking at some of the um, you know, looking at sort of opportunities where it can maybe uh, grow its yield and expand without that level of competition.
1: How As we go into this recession, the consumer still wants to fly, but the consumer is going to be maybe a little bit more cost conscious. To your point about going for slot constrained airports, are, are, are consumers going to say, I, I need to fly from Gatwick. I live in the south of London. That's where I'm going to fly from. Or are they going to say the price gap is so big between flying with Ryanair from Stansted that that's going to be the choice that I ultimately make how how price sensitive is is the all-in cost going to going to be for the consumer
3: yeah I mean I think that um you know consumers will turn more price sensitive as the year goes on and some of those bills sort of catch up for them um you know however um it is sort of I think another thing we have to factor into this is is the ease of, of getting to certain airports, yeah. right? I mean, both Gatwick and Stansted are reasonably easy to get to from London. I do think, you know, it's still in people's minds that there was some very high disruptions in Gatwick um, last summer, which you didn't have in Stansted. Yeah. And I think Ryanair um, certainly benefited from that. Um, Ryanair also benefited from the idea that they kept that staff current um, during the pandemic. So wh- whereas if EasyJet, um, you know, suffered from labour shortages last year, so that caused disruption. So whether that's still going to weigh into people's minds next year, because, you know, you don't want to book tickets to to find out that your flight's been cancelled or delays, because no. that, that adds on to other costs.
1: No, and I think a lot of people were put off, certainly by the experience that they they had, certainly over the summer. Um, like the stories, as you say, coming out of Gatwick and Heathrow as well. Conroy, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Conroy Gaynor, Bloomberg Intelligence, travel, leisure, and retail analyst. Um, Alex, mm-hmm. still flying? Uh, you, you've been, you, you haven't had the best of experiences.
0: No, I really haven't. But I'm not flying till uh, February, so I feel like I, there's more time for them to get their kinks worked out. Actually, ironically, I'm going to Florence in February, and I feel like international flights are better than domestic flights. I might rue the day that I said that. But that's how it feels. Like, it's a little easier to do that because there's not like a million flights. When you go to hubs, I feel like that's when you run into problems. And when you go to LaGuardia, then Making everything is bad.
1: LaGuardia and connections. All this bad. LaGuardia is all experience.
0: bad. When I saw the rain coming on Sunday, I was like, every single flight in LaGuardia is going to be delayed now. No one's getting home from Thanksgiving. They're all staying with the turkey. I don't know. Do you have any vacations? Planes coming up?
1: That could be worse. Uh, I'm sure I'll be on one soon. I, I, I yeah, I've had some... But,
0: but you've re- been okay. I went through, I went through
1: been... Berlin recently, and um, the new airport there, that was actually all right. Not too bad. Uh, I managed to get home in one piece. A little Eventually. late. Eventually, a but, little late. Yeah, I made it for the show. That was the critical thing. Uh, anyway, hope you're enjoying this show. This is Blue Book.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. You are listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Let's just check in here on U.S. markets. We were already kind of talking about it, but U.S. stocks uh, trading a little heavy today. It's technology that's really leading the way downwards. The Nasdaq 100 is underperforming as you got Apple uh, sliding as well as Microsoft uh, and Amazon. Amazon's looking to sell some uh, investment-grade debt right now, so you're looking to share slump uh, there as well. Um, U.S.-listed Chinese stocks, they did jump, though, as we're looking at potentially maybe China reopening in some capacity as there's a push to vaccinate uh, senior citizens. Um, we're also looking at the last day. Is tomorrow the last day? Yes, tomorrow's the last day uh, of the month. We're also looking uh, at Powell speaking tomorrow, and then you got jobs uh, on Friday, and then PCE in the U.S. on Thursday. There's a lot coming up and how to gear yourself up for that. That's a quick snapshot here in the U.S. Now let's get more with Charlie Pellet.
4: Hi. Thank you very much, Alex Steele, Bank of England. England policymaker Catherine Mann says inflation expectations are becoming increasingly embedded in the prices that companies are setting and are drifting toward double the 2% target level. The remarks highlight Mann's support for sharp increases in the benchmark lending rate, which the central bank has lifted to 3% from near zero a year ago. Investors expect another half-point increase in December. Ukraine is urging NATO to speed up decision-making on issues including producing and supplying weapons and called for more air defense systems to help defend against Russia's invasion. Latvia's foreign minister says Ukraine should be free to strike military sites inside Russia as it fends off attacks on its critical infrastructure. Lloyd's Banking Group is stepping up help for struggling customers, including mortgage relief during the UK's heightened economic stress, as according to CEO Charlie Nunn speaking at the FT Global Banking Summit. Nunn said the bank is talking to British regulators about lengthening the terms of some mortgages, as well as moving some customers to interest-only loans or lower-cost products as they adjust to the soaring cost of living. Goldman Sachs Group is shifting some of its euro swaps trading desk to Milan from London, the latest example of roles moving to the continent after Brexit. The Wall Street giant is relocating staff as it bolsters European offices in the wake of the UK's departure from the European Union. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York.
0: All right, Charlie, thanks very much. I mean, I think the weather's a bit nicer in Milan. Guy, did I make that up? I mean, it it looks to be a little chilly.
1: You're asking the wrong person.
0: Am I? I thought you'd do the it's weather. Cold, I thought you're all like colder. weather. Oh. it's
1: there we go. Tommaso Eppard. You're asking the right person now.
0: Tommaso Eppard is there. Buena Is it nice there? I mean, do, do I want to move from London to Milan?
7: is is way too cold in Milan and actually the bankers who are moving from Milan to London maybe they're not expected It might be colder here than over there but yes there is a there is a wave of uh, bankers, investors, uh, hedge funds uh, who are deciding to move to Milan because uh, the financial district of uh, of Italy is becoming more attractive? Is why there are very good financial in, financial incentives to be based in Milan. If you are an Italian living abroad, you essentially pay a small fraction of your income taxing for even up to 10 years. If you are a high earner, you can agree to pay just 100,000 euros in income tax a year. And then it's a small city with a good connection. So many of them are coming here.
1: The, the Dolomites are quite close. Like, the skiing is good. Um, let's just point that one out as well. So there are there are certain advantages. Um, and let's face it, the Italians always dress well. So you're going to get some nice shops, Alex. It's
0: true. It's true. Um,
1: let, let's talk about... Do, do people want to go to Milan? Why do you want to go to Milan versus Paris? Why do you go to Milan versus Frankfurt? And isn't the danger here that what we find is that European finance that used to be based in London, all in one place, gets fragmented? And is that a problem?
7: That's a good question. Um I mean, uh, uh, clearly, this is, uh, you know, all a consequence of Brexit. We have to be quite clear about it, no? So many, many, for many reasons, uh, some bankers have to be based uh, in continental uh, Europe. And so there is a sort of competition between uh, a member state of the European Union to attract uh, talents, I would say. And uh, that's uh, happening. And we see, yes, we see, uh, we, have, we have seen an increase of uh, bankers and, you know, financial jobs, uh, Uh, in Milan, as long as uh, Paris and Frankfurt. Clearly, Milan is smaller, also in terms of the financial district, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's becoming attractive uh, because, I mean, uh, imagine, you're a banker, they tell you you have to move to Europe, you go to Frankfurt, things work very well, then you go to Paris, uh, uh, which is bit chaotic, Uh, then you come to Milan, uh, prices of uh, houses uh, which are actually surging are still uh, lower than Paris, for example, quality of life is higher, you have international school, um, you know, good hospital and very easy connection for the rest of the globe. So, you know, maybe you are Italian too and you can have a fiscal benefit. So why not? And I mean, as we broke the news today, Goldman is moving a desk to Milan, which is, I would say, quite unique.
1: Yeah. Uh, that, that's yeah. That's that's certainly why we're focusing on it, Tommaso. One of the downsides, though, of moving to Milan is is that you've got to talk about Italian football. <laughs> I, not in the World Cup. Bit of an issue. And then there's issues going on at Juventus as well that we need to focus on. Can yeah. you tell me? I, I'm trying to understand what is happening at Juventus because my first yeah. read of the story this morning was the board resigns, the Agnelli's are resigning. This, I, After all of the troubles that we've had financially at the club, maybe this is Diagnelli's looking to exit. But, but I've got that wrong, haven't I? This is actually maybe them tightening their grip. This is the yeah. family that own Fiat, etc., tightening their grip on the club.
7: Yes, I mean, there is also an interesting familiar aspect uh, to this uh, saga, as we uh, wrote uh, uh, this afternoon, and you can read on the terminal uh, the story that Daniel and I put together. So, what's happening here, essentially, Juve uh, is in trouble, is in, has been in financial troubles for years. They raised over 700 million in capital increase in the last, uh, in the last uh, three years. Uh, Italian football is in trouble, is not generating enough revenue. Then you have the COVID years, where obviously stadiums were empty. The TV run in Italy are uh, less expensive than in other markets like the UK. The Italian soccer teams together try to to, to find an agreement and to sell a minority stake to uh, some uh, some funds, but that they didn't agree on it. So there is a problem, a, a really business model problem for Italian football. It looks like, uh, this is according to prosecutors, uh, that uh, Juventus uh, went a bit too far. They inflated the value of some players during transfer to register some um, artificial capital gain, and they also made an agreement with their players during COVID, uh, which essentially ended Ended up with you paying, uh, uh, telling uh, the to telling investors they, they, they would have paid uh, just uh, a fraction of the salary and then making an agreement, uh, not, anou- not announcing to everyone that they will, by the way, all, pay almost all of it uh, to the players. Uh, mm-hmm. at, uh, and at the center of the scandal, the, list, the board of directors and Andranielli. Andranielli is one of the heirs of the Agnelli family, but is not uh, the, the one who is running the billionaire family show. That guy is John Elkan. John Elkan uh, essentially today is uh, uh, making clear that uh, Juventus should be managed uh, uh, properly and, and he somehow uh, wants to start from scratch mm-hmm. and so his cousin uh, after a 12-year tenure which was very successful on the pitch uh, in Italy. Juve won nine consecutive titles not in Europe. Then there was obviously this big uh, uh, issue. They, they hired Cristiano Ronaldo. They paid 100 yeah. million euros. They didn't go anywhere in Europe. So anyway... They want to start from scratch. Uh, John yep. wants to start from scratch. Uh, there is also, obviously, a you know family stuff here. You have two cousins, uh, and one is the one who is showing that he's the one making the real decision.
0: Tommaso, we're going to leave it there, and we all have to go catch a game in the next, or a match, sorry, the next 90 minutes. Match. Tommaso Epphardt, Bloomberg's M- uh, Milan chief. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and
7: Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good evening. It's in the Cable on Bluebreak DAB digital radio. It is that time of the year, although it's a bit earlier uh, than most. Um, many are coming out with their 2023 outlooks. Uh, for example, Bank of America: huge discrepancy between the bull and the bear case for the S and P. You got 4,600 for the bull. You got uh, 3,000 for the bear. We're also getting recession calls, etc. Um, so Guy and I and Shanalee Bassett caught up with um, uh, Leon Calveria. He's City Institutional Clients uh, Group Chairman. He's also been around Wall Street for a very long time. And we want to talk to him about the banker base and what his strongest conviction really is or what he's focusing most on for 2023.
6: I think what I feel most strongly about is that the Fed will stop raising. It's a question of which month. So we can argue about whether it's March, April, May, but I think there's a reasonable consensus as people look that middle of the year should be the end of this. And at that point in time, people will start to look forward and obviously they'll even start to look forward months ahead.
0: So how then do you think about the challenges in between? You think about the tensions in China, you think about the war in Ukraine, you think about the recession worries in Europe. Of those challenges, which are the most difficult for your clients to be working through?
6: I think our clients' most important issue right now is evaluating what the near-term earnings look like. In other words, how big a recession do we have in the U.S.? Is it mild? Is it a soft landing? When you look at Europe, obviously the picture is a little bit more difficult, so number one, they're trying to figure out exactly what they can predict in terms of earnings, what they want to spend on capital, how they want to look at hiring going forward. Obviously, you've got the external issue. How long does the Ukraine and the awfulness of that extend on here right now? And any other geopolitical issues that that could be in effect fat tail risk to the market. So right now, I'm actually expecting hopefully a stabilized next year, starting, you know, hopefully in the first and second quarter, which should mean the return of certain marketplaces like the IPO market and a continuation of the M&A market.
0: What about until then? I'm wondering if you look at what the pipeline looks like for investor appetite for capital markets right now. You see major bond deals coming to market today. You see banks still with billions of dollars worth of debt, leveraged buyout debt particularly on their balance sheets. So how then do banks and investors work through that to put new money to work?
6: I think they work through it very carefully. Obviously, people are Going to be very, very cautious about putting on new leverage finance commitments over the next few months. People want to see stabilization. People have existing commitments. They will work their way through it. And from an investor standpoint, not that I'm the best investor at all, I think people will understand that this marketplace is one that's going to have a fair amount of volatility from here until we get to a more stable path. And obviously, we saw a few weeks ago, you know, a 1,000-point movements in the Dow. I think I think people have become a little bit immune to that. Whereas years gone past, there would have been a much larger shock effect. Now, I don't want to say they shrug it off, but it's not as big a situation as they would have in prior years.
1: That was Leo Calveria joining us a little bit earlier in conversation with Shinali Basak, Alex, and myself, um, joining us from Sydney. Alex, I, a reasonably positive picture. But I still think people are struggling to predict what is going to happen next year.
0: Oh yeah and also if we learned anything from people's 2022 outlook everybody's wrong <laughs> whether you're essential bankers economists world leaders uh, or strategists like everyone basically was wrong we also went on to talk a lot uh, about the banker world and yep. and and he I saw he said some interesting things and in that how you have to be really flexible and evolve in a, if you're a banker that the banker you were 10 years ago cannot be the banker that you are now and that sort of the culling that we're seeing, is normal, yep. and then also kind of reflective of that. So
1: there's another interesting piece on the terminal today. I think it's actually from an FT interview, but it's talking about the idea, and I think it's city as well, you're basically getting bankers progressing to relatively senior positions now who have never experienced money being anything other than effectively free, i.e. Yes, interest I love rates that piece. being mm-hmm. virtually zero.
0: Yeah, but. And we talked about it's not only bankers, it's traders, it's retail yep. traders. Like if you haven't known anything else with the last ten years, how do you possibly understand uh, how to manage? That? I thought that was really fascinating. And plus the idea that you can, that the worker and the banker has a lot more power. That lasted for like six months. Yep. <laughs> now we're like back to the banks uh, having more control.
1: The good news about this is that maybe mm-hmm. age does carry some benefits. but having sort of lived through a little and a, a few a, downturns. This is a longer but,
0: conversation. Yeah. If you're a man with gray hair, it's okay. This is Bloomberg.
2: This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele
7: on Bloomberg Radio
2: overall dipped for a second month in a row and within that present situation was down and also expectations continue to signal that consumers expect recession at some point over the next six months and it's been signaling that for several months so uh, consumers are definitely showing that uh, the economy lost momentum as we uh, are rounding out to the end of this year
1: So that was Dana Peterson joining us from the U.S. Conference Board, talking about the data that got delivered a little bit earlier on uh, by the Conference Board on Consumer Confidence. Now, as we've just been hearing, the headline number uh, continues to dip. The number I always pay attention to is expectations. Basically, a number below 80 does kind of signal that we are looking at a recession potentially 6 to 12 months out. Uh, And that number has gone from last month, 78, down to 754 uh, and this is consistent with certainly what the yield curve is is signaling in the United States at the moment, that the U.S. economy is heading towards a, a, a recession. The, the critical thing here, a bit like the U.K. in some ways, is that... The labour market continues to hold up. Now, we're going to hear from Jay Powell tomorrow, but we're also going to get the JOLTS uh, job opening data. Now, this is job opening data that that is a little kind of rear view mirror, but is actually a useful guide to kind of what is happening uh, in the US economy in terms of a forward-looking indicator. And this kind of takes us towards uh, the labour market data, the payrolls data that we're going to get, on Friday. So a a really big day coming up for the U.S. economy tomorrow. Anna Wong is Bloomberg's economy, Bloomberg Economics chief U.S. economist. Anna, first of all, what did you make of the conference board data today? Is that expectations number we get from the U.S. consumer a useful guide as to where the U.S. economy is going?
2: I would say normally in before the pandemic, it would be quite a useful guide in telling where spending would be. But in the re- pandemic, we have seen sentiment plunge to levels last seen in you know, 2008, but yet spending still held up pretty well. So I would say that um, in, a, in a high inflationary environment like w- where we are right now, sen- sentiment tends to be very poor, but yet people actually would pull forward their uh, purchases and continue to spend just because their um, uh, income is catching up with, with, with inflation. You know, so, if you look at the labor income mm-hmm. in total, not real wages. So,
0: so Anna, wh- when do we stop spending? Like when do we say, okay, I'm done, I gotta like hunker down, save up for a recession, <laughs> and I gotta brace for pain. Like does that happen this time?
2: I I think that the sentiment indicator, oh uh, you know, over exaggerated how much people are, are are pulling back in terms of spending. I I think spending will keep on surprisingly uh, on on the upside, and there are two reasons. One, um, so the U.S. Social Security system just had a cost of living adjustment, uh, which will become effective in December for uh, older Americans, which is about which account for about 30 percent of total uh, consumption in the U.S. Yes, My mother is very,
0: very, very much looking forward to this.
2: Right, and and so if inflation does fall to, towards three point five or three percent next year, as most people are currently forecasting, that means that older Americans will get a real income bump of about five percent next year. Hmm. Uh, which should support spending. And the second reason is that we find that at the state and local government level, there's still about $700 billion of excess savings, and those excess savings are translating into stimulus checks in people's pockets. And we estimate that at least 13 states are still in the process of giving out these checks.
1: Given all of this, where does that leave Jay Powell tomorrow, the chair of the Federal Reserve, giving a really key speech. A lot of people are, are waiting for this. The, the narrative from a lot of Fed speakers recently has sounded relatively hawkish. And I'm wondering why we're getting this kind of discrepancy between how hawkish the Fed sounds and how the data is coming through.
2: Well, I, I think the, the hawkishness of the, the Fed is uh, well uh, reflecting that they do see the inflation being more persistent. And it, it's not about the level of data if you just look at the the data that's coming in it looks kind of weak but it is relative to what's expected and what the Fed has in their baseline that drives the tone of the message and so far I would say in the last month or two the data has been coming in stronger than expected even though they're pretty bad like the housing data it, it didn't plunge as people thought you know as it would. Um, And so I think uh, Powell would come in very hawkish tomorrow. He doesn't want to see financial conditions ease. He thinks that all this pivot talk is way too early. And he'll just, you know, Mm -hmm. once again, did what he did at at the Jackson Hole and back in August.
0: Anna, will he say anything different than what Bullard and Williams said yesterday, which is basically like, we're going to keep hiking. In essence, we're not cutting next year and we're going to stay at higher rates for longer. Does he say anything different than that?
2: Um, I, I, I think Powell's view is most aligned with uh, John Williams. They're at similar level of hawkishness, according to our spectrometer. So it would be quite similar. Message would be they're going to go stay higher for longer. That um, and that the terminal rate has um, is higher than what they have seen in September, yeah. and that market pricing of about five percent terminal rate is about fair.
1: Is about fair. So basically, the narrative yeah. at the moment is. We get to five or maybe a little bit above it on Fed funds rate. And then we stay there for the whole of 2023. Is that the scenario that we should be looking at? Because the market's a little soft on that. We're kind of we're just about there, but not
2: quite there. Yeah, I think Powell uh, is on the hawkish side of the entire FOMC committee. I think the median of the FOMC is leaning toward what the market is pricing, which is about one cut in 2023. But Powell is the chairman, so he ultimately gets to push the committee toward his view. And I think his view is to hold it for the entirety of 2023.
0: Uh, Quickly, Friday, it's not too early to give a prediction. What are you guys expecting?
2: Uh, We are expecting a 180K increase in the monthly non-farm payroll, which is still a substantially higher pace, faster pace than what would be uh, consistent with a neutral labour market or even a labour market that's uh, getting to a 4.5% unemployment rate that the Fed forecasts. It's uh, still way too strong.
0: All right, Anna. Really great stuff. We really appreciate your analysis, Anna Wong. It is really strong labor market. Uh, joining us from Bloomberg Economics. Um, thank you so much, and thanks everyone for listening. That kind of wraps it up for me and Guy. Is it is it Monday? No, it's Tuesday. It's Tuesday. Oh, okay. All right. Two days in, guys. We will see you tomorrow. Have a great night. You've been listening to the cable. This is Bloomberg.